0: So here we are. Uh, we've just heard Orlando Wood doing a great presentation up here in Edinburgh um, on his uh, lemon and the crisis in uh, in advertising. Uh, I've quickly grabbed uh, Orlando before he heads off to his next pressing engagement, which I think is in Newcastle, and I've taken the opportunity to uh, get a roundtable session with uh, three young creative leaders of the future who form part of my Talent Forum. They are Rachel Patrick from the And Partnership up here in Scotland, Emily Willing from the Union, um, an advertising agency in Scotland in, here in Edinburgh as well, and Heather Hughes from Story, uh, another advertising agency in Edinburgh, and Orlando, we're round a table, we're in uh, another lecture theatre in Summerhall, and uh, so thanks very much for an entertaining presentation. Oh, pleasure,
1: No, it's been fantastic to be here.
0: I got quite a lot from it. And I think um, I think everyone's brought some questions, so I'll not witter on too long. Uh, In fact, I'll not witter on at all. So I thought (laughs) I might throw the question open. (laughs) Rachel, did you have a specific question that you wanted to to, to raise with Orlando?
2: I did. Um, One of the points when you said in 2006 is when kind of the tables turned Mm. from right side to left Mm. side um, advertising. And I wondered what you thought social media and to a point trolling had an effect on that change from right to left because you obviously <coughs> nowadays people are very quick on social media to voice their opinions whether right or wrong um based on adverts so it was just interesting to see if you what your thoughts were on that
1: yes i think that, that could well be a, you know another factor i mean there are so many as I say in the book and I was saying earlier, so many things I think have caused uh, this um, contributing factors. Uh, I think social media is probably part of it, Um, as I said you know it's sort of, uh, we're all focused, we have very narrow focus, we bring very narrow goal oriented focus to bear on our mobile phones every day. caught up in our own little worlds and, our, and you know, our connections through algorithms that present very similar people to us, uh, our friends. And, uh, you know, we don't get out very much. You know, we, we sort of get trapped in our own bubble, really. Um, an algorithmic bubble, perhaps. So I think social media has uh, had something to do with it. Um, and, uh, you know, it's funny, isn't it, that social media and I talk about this in the book as well, um, has been, uh, you know, it feels it feels ashamed, I think, about presenting advertising to people because there's been this this long-held view that th- this is a personal space, a social space for people to be, you know, unencumbered by commerce. Um, and so the type of advertising that has come about has been much more, let's use the term, relevant. It's a term I hate because, <laughs> uh, you know, aiming for relevance is just simply not enough. You've got to entertain people. Um, so we've got very relevant, inverted commas, advertising a lot of the time on social media streams, which is, tends to be flat, tends to be shot from above, you know, a recipe being made. There's a, there's a focus on making things, which is the left brain's, you know, predilection in making things, tools. You know, if I, I, I joke often that, you know, if I have to see Greg Wallace in another fish finger factory uh, on, on television, you know, I think I'll go mad. But, you know, there, there's no aspiration anymore on, on television programmes. You know, it's about making things and constructing things and how things work. You know, there's a sort of literalness to things. Well, you see that in advertising. You see it in, the, in that sort of highly relevant content. Another word I don't like very much <laughs> because it, it, it gives much greater emphasis to the pipe work than to the... The stuff that goes through it, the stuff that people actually see and should be connecting with and relating to.
0: There was a very interesting uh, presentation that was done by a, a, a great planner friend of mine who who works down at Mother, and she was she was t- she she did a, a really good riff on the Pepsi. Um, uh, in house ad that they'd mm-hmm, created, mm-hmm. and how it was just ticking all the kind of mm. boxes that the client felt mm-hmm. that they, they really needed to, uh, to, yeah, to land need to address. Um, very, very kind of left brained um, approach to creativity. Yeah, yeah, what was your take? On that?
1: Well, I, you know, I, yes, I mean, I agree. Um, and by the way, I don't want people to think that what I've done is a a tick-box exercise either. You know, if you get all of these things, then you'll get a great ad. You know, that's not... not, I want people to kind of just (coughs) absorb this, uh, I suppose, you know, way of looking at the world um, and to be receptive to it, to sort of help bring it to bear in the work. Um, But I think you're right, you know, there's a lot of tick-boxing going on uh, everywhere. Um, The left brain likes to categorise, to classify... Um, to break things down into smaller parts to ensure that there's an even even distribution of these parts, you know, you see it everywhere, and uh, and, it, and I think it's very dangerous. In fact, it's, it's particularly dangerous when it comes to people and categorizing people into boxes which you then tick off. You know, the categorization of people led, led to some pretty awful things in the 20th century. So I think less of that. We need to sort of Appreciate people for who they are, what they say, what they bring, you know, um, their experience, their backgrounds, you know, all of these things are the person that you are. Um, uh, So, yes, I think categorisation is not always useful in certain contexts, but um, when it gets out of hand, it's, 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 Mm. it's not helpful.
3: Uh, I just want to ask about money. Obviously, um, <laughs> how, how important do you think the relationship is between the wealth of a society and how left and right brain they become? Mm. Like, do you think after a period of austerity, things naturally mm. go to the left?
1: Well, there's, there's, you know, so, as, I, as I sort of joke in the presentation, I mentioned in the book as well that all of those right brain features cost money. A uh, to, to cost money to make things where you've got actors. Uh, you know a scene a set uh, if it's set in the past you know uh, or costumes, all of these things um, I'm sorry, but it's just the way it is uh, and if you want advertising that works it's, you know you've got to invest in it um, but yeah I mean I think that that's certainly part of it but isn't it interesting that this shift happened before the downturn you know two years before that I'm sure it hasn't helped um, because you know people increasingly looking at efficiency and, as Les Binet says, the most, you know, efficient company is the one that doesn't exist, Mm. Uh, you know, efficiencies just just get you down to nothing in the end. Uh, And the right brain is all about, you know, creating things and adding value and all the while the left brain is trying to reduce prices and and increase scale and, you know, reduce costs and all those sorts of things. Its instinct is to reduce, is to bring things down and to say no to things. and we've got to kind of fight against that a bit, I think. I,
3: th- I think it's our job to teach clients that creativity is effective. Do you know what I mean? Like quite yeah. often, right-brain thinking is considered an indulgence. Mm. Whereas if you don't have a lot of money, you do do that yeah. tick box, where it's, we need to say mm. X, Y, and Z. But the problem is, is if people have already switched off before you've ticked those boxes, yes. then yeah. we need to teach them that you know the more creative side of it can be far more effective oh, and make them more money.
2: I
1: th- I th- absolutely right. Um, you know, it's... Um, it, you. you if Rory Sutherland sort of makes the point that uh, if you, you know, why is it that we have to make a case for uh, uh, the, the sort of uh, creative stuff um, which makes the money, you know, when you don't have to make a case for the entirely rational logical route, um, it should be the other way round, you know, That's you should it. be having to make a case for something that is that is dull, flat and, and didactic, you know, uh, not... not the creative route, mm. and why is it? You know, I mean, we trust. You know, we will trust a doctor by and large. You know, when they when they dispense a sort of, uh, they give us a, a prescription. You trust a lawyer. You know, to sort of um, uh, you know, to sort things out. You know, why is it that we don't trust people in advertising to um to to do the same thing? Mm. You know, that we feel we need to get involved in some way. Mm. There's I talk about it in the books. Quite a, it's quite um, quite interesting. There's um. There's also a film, by the way, The Divided Brain. I don't know if you've seen it, but no. it's, it, watch it if you can. You can, you can uh, get it online, you can pay, pay to rent it. But it's all about the master and his emissary and, and Ian McGilchrist's work. Um, but there's a lovely scene in it where they show um, people who, in, in the 60s, the first sort of split brain patient experiments on people with epilepsy and they cut the corpus callosum so that if you had an epileptic fit it wouldn't transfer across the whole brain, it would be localised to just one half of the brain. But anyway they found some quite remarkable things happened in the first month or two after these operations in these patients. And it, for instance, um, you know, if you, if, if you ask someone to go and pick out a dress from the wardrobe, you know, the right hand would pick out one dress but the left hand would pick out a different dress, each hand controlled by the opposite hemisphere. Um, and it was often felt as if it was the left hand that was misbehaving, you know, controlled by the right brain. The left brain is going, oh. uh, they also found that in, they had these sort of cubes, if you can imagine on a table, uh, with a pattern on them. And of course, when you arrange the cubes in a certain way, they create a whole picture, a bit like a jigsaw. And they found that um, the the you know when, when you sort of get got each hand to, to do this, so the, the people people's left brain which controls the right hand, uh, the, the left the left brain went straight in you know to try and uh, organise these bits, but because it can't see the whole, it couldn't do it. You know, it was struggling. I which bit goes there? They restrain the right hand and let the left hand do it, controlled by the right brain does it in seconds because it can see the whole picture. And what we've got ourselves into is a situation where the left brain likes to control everything that's happening uh, and interfere actually in things that it doesn't really understand or can't, con- can't you know, that it feels it needs to control. Um, and you see it in the way ads a commission, the timeframes, the procurement, the way it breaks things down into smaller parts, you know, allocating a resource to this particular, um, you know, kind of piece of work, you know, part of a greater set of things. I mean, all sorts of ways in which, as I say in the book, that the whole, the whole ecosystem has become very left-brained.
2: So how can we kind of work with clients, I guess, to encourage them to buy into the the more right-brained, creative, effective ideas, do you think?
1: Well, I mean, that's why I wrote the book. Uh, <laughs> Give
2: um, the clients lemon. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: and, and clients are very interested, you know, I mean, clients are, are buying it in large quantities, I have to am delighted to say. Uh and just to, just to quickly to, to say,
0: at the IPA event that we just held here at Summerhall, there were actually in a number of clients that came along, which is really unusual yeah, for an IPA event. Oh,
1: so, really? Yes, that's yeah. that's fantastic. Um, so they, you know, they and they, I, I'm going to speak uh, at a lot of client um, companies. Uh, I think the thing about the book is that it touches on something that's broader than just advertising. It touches on culture more broadly. And everyone feels this loss of, you know, as I say, three or four of our five taste buds that's happened over the last five years. You know, the the loss of romantic comedies, sketch shows, sitcoms, all of which cost, which also cost money to make, by the way, just like advertising. Um, And uh, there's, you know, you sort of pinpoint something that we, we can all feel in our everyday lives... And I think I, I think I suspect that people don't really want to be associated with the left-brained work. I hope that's the you know sort of part of what comes out of this, um, and that they want to be part of something that brings all this depth and humanity back. You know that um, to be part of the Renaissance, you know, rather than the Reformation, if you see what I mean. Um, and so, I mean, it's perhaps a naive hope. I don't know, but I think the book gives some good pointers on. Explaining why emotional advertising works, that it showing that it works, uh, how you might go about it, um, some ideas on on the actual creative development process, and how not to get caught up in left brain traps, and um, you know the sorts of work, humour, metaphor, characters above all that really kind of work.
0: You mentioned procurement earlier on, and the breaking down of, uh, of, of the of process I suppose of, of advertising or the, or the industry of advertising and I think we're familiar with that as well with with you know with the conversations media agencies will be having will be different from the conversations that the, the creative agencies will be having which will be different from the conversations that necessarily PR and influencer led mm. agencies are having do you do you see a way forward for us to to, to create a narrative around a right-brained kind mm. of um, uh, Approaches that, that that we as an industry can kind of, I suppose, reimagine our relationships with clients together.
1: Yeah, and and you know, I mean, the, the the splitting up of media and advertising agencies in the late '80s, early '90s, I think is part of the part of the the problem in many ways because all the money now goes into the the pipe work and not into the not into the creative bit, you know. Um, and uh, that shift in emphasis has, has, I think, you know, has been a slow, gradual kind of. It, w- everyone's a bit disconnected from each other. You know, that when you're creating a campaign, it's not 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 as easy as it used to be to say, well, with this one this needs to go on a bus and that needs to go. You know, mm-hmm. so uh, that that is that is part of the problem, I think. And I, I just, you know, if if those if those functions could be a bit more together, I think that will be a helpful thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you're right. You know, there are lots of different specialisms now in marketing, and um, there's everyone's caught in their own specialism a little bit. And you need breadth, you need range uh, for for things to to work. You know, that's what the right brain gives you. And in, in encouraging specialism just leads to the same kind of work, I'm afraid. As you saw it in the late Roman period, you see you, know, you see it <laughs> yeah. you see it today. Um, so, so the work is not immune from the structural problems, and in fact, it is reflected very much so in the work. Uh, and we've got to fight, but you have to start with the work before you start addressing issues of culture mm-hmm. or or any of those things. There's an interesting story. Um, Adrian Holmes, uh, who did the front cover of the book, who did the water in the Orca ad, you know, he says, um, you know, there are three things that are different today for for, for creatives. You know, I mean. The first is time pressure, obviously, and a matter of hours or days to sort of turn something around. Um, the second is um, uh, lunch, you know, so where did lunch go? Uh, because lunch is a time of betweenness and connection um, between you, your clients, you know, uh, and of course, you might have a drink of wine, perhaps, and something uh, happens in those between moments, you know, where there is a uh, conversation or someone says something, there's a connection that's made and this is how creativity works, you know, when you've got lots of different inputs at the same time. And the, the third one, he said, um, is the door. The door has gone from the creative's uh, office um, and the door enabled you to be silly Mm-hmm. And to do and to think the unthinkable, and to do different things. And now we're all in open plan offices. You know that doesn't happen anymore. And as I talk about in in you know I mentioned it earlier, but architecture of the late Roman period is very much like architecture of today with the long, open, expansive walls, uh, light coming in. The open plan office is the left brain's dream. It's about packing people in, uh, you know, in small spaces. Um, and it also means that you've got an eye on what everyone's doing. There's a sense of control, um, you know, uh, and seeing, seeing the whole thing. It's like Jeremy Bentham, you know, in the, who invented many words like taxonomy. Um, it, you know, in, in the classical sort of period, he, um, father of utilitarianism, he, he devised this design of prison, the panopticon, which meant that the person, the guards, you know, could see every prisoner in their cell at any given time. You know, it's a bit like that—an open-plan office. You know, and there are tools now, of course, which enable you to observe what every employee is doing. Um, it is—it is the panopticon. Um, so, so yes, the door uh, is the third one that Adrian talks about, which is quite quite interesting. So, but you have to—the point is—you have to start with the work and what's going wrong with the work to start to think about. You know, structural changes in the industry, architectural changes, cultural changes, um, all of these things come from the work. Uh, there's no point discussing these things until you unless you put the work front and centre. Do
3: you know Emily touched upon this point in the in the talk, the fact that creatives are coming up with the right brain ideas but the clients aren't buying them. And I think a, a big part of that is reminding clients that when they when they take their marketing hat off, they are consumers. Mm. They are the people that are getting just as excited as we mm. are when you know, when the John Lewis Christmas ad comes mm. out. You know what I mean and you're you want to say to them that's how exciting your ad can be if you weren't using your Tech box. And why do
1: you think it is that they're that they're, they're not they wouldn't be buying them? What do they what 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 are the responses? So it doesn't meet the brief, maybe that's one, I don't know. I mean the
2: I think certainly stuff I've been on relatively recently, a lot of it has been about box ticking. Mm. And they've been maybe excited about one idea but another idea has ticked whatever boxes it is that mm. they're needing to tick. And I think that's that's tricky to see them being excited about one thing, but still that is probably the right Hang
1: thing. Hang on, let's get but, back to our list. Yeah, it's because exactly. they're
3: nervous. And, I feel they're nervous yeah. in their roles. Like if, if marketing yeah. managers are usually in the job 18 months, mm-hmm. it's because they feel that they're going to have to stand up in front of their boss in six months and go, this TV ad did X, Y and Z, mm. you know. So I think they are terrified to do their job wrong, so it's having an impact on the type of creative
1: Well, an atmosphere of fear is never conducive to creativity, is it? So, yes. Sorry, go on.
2: No, I was thinking about accountability and responsibility, and there's definitely that air that they kind of go to the safe, maybe more left option, because one, it'll probably be cheaper and that there won't be any backlash there is kind of then they don't have to stand up and say look i made a mistake Mm. and i think we're quite fearful nowadays of making mistakes even though nowadays you probably find that mistakes are quicker to correct Mm. in a more digital age Mm. that you can revamp that work really quickly and you can correct those things you've seen it with films where was it aladdin where they made the genie not blue and then they changed it back because they got such it's right, the, kind of right. those things sonic, that the yeah, yeah it's sonic the hedgehog <laughs> and yeah. other things that you kind of go it, people are quite afraid to be yeah. bold in this day they and age are. now they i are. think yeah. they kind of like the warmth and safety without realizing actually if you were to be that bold it's I, it's okay to be human, and I think maybe we're forgo- we're forgetting that that people make mistakes. Well, and, that's then, right. yeah. and yet,
1: they're, and yet, they're very bold in ways um, which which in in ways you know, creative routes that don't engage with the general public at all. Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, one of the things I was going to say is, and you might expect me to say this, but you know, one thing you can do is test for emotional response or is the audience you know responding well to this because that gives terrific confidence and I hope the book shows that that you know also leads to market share changes in your favour so that's one of the things that we can do to give that kind of confidence but in ways that don't you know sort of overanalyse the work it's kind of like a physiological response do I do I connect with this in some way because I was talking to Jeremy Bullmore the other day and he was saying uh that uh, your humour is so important in advertising because it is a demonstration that I have made some sort of connection be- yeah. between you know in in the work in front of me, which I think is a great point. Um, so I think t- testing is part is is it could be. I hate to you know suggest it to you all, but <laughs> it might be the right yeah. kind of testing, it's sympathetic to the the end goal is the is the, is you know one thing, and, and the other thing I just to return to my point is that. Uh, you know, you look at the sort of work that is being awarded by um, creative awards bodies and you look at how that tests with the general public and it tests terribly. Um, you know, Viva la Volva, which you may all know, uh, Grand Prix, you know, it wins, it wins every kind of uh, creative award for its bravery. Um, and yet it gets one star in our... Testing amongst the general public, and yet you look at campaigns Turkey of the Week, you know the sort of ads that it ridicules. Um, you know we we have we've looked at going back a number of months on this. Nineteen of their turkeys of the week achieve you know sort of three and a half stars in testing, connecting much better with the public than they are amongst ourselves. So what you know one of the projects are interested in the next year is highlighting and explaining the gap that's arisen between the things that the industry itself seems to cherish and the things that actually connect with the real world and Absolutely. the population mm-hmm. that my, that
3: my that. facebook feed i've got a lot of friends and advertising um on it and a lot of them if they're slating a particular ad it'll always be an ad that either my mum or sister loves <laughs> Do you mm-hmm. mean i always mm-hmm. always makes me giggle the fact that there'll be the versa. ads that people yeah, enjoy like
1: that. i mean the the burger recent burger king one's an interesting one where you know it gets moldy over yeah. and, you know uh you know i think oh everyone says well how brave this is a wonderful thing you know but the general public, one star, you know, disgust, high levels of disgust, and then negative associations, of course. So you might get a short term spike and some sort of earned media from this kind of shock, you know, advertising. But whether it will kind of help you to build a brand amongst lots of people over a longer time period is a quite another thing. It's interesting you mentioned
0: earlier on about that, you know, maybe the metrics, you know, maybe the testing, maybe the, 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 what we're testing against are the wrong things. Yeah, it's a very That's short-term, it, yeah. you know, stuff. It's, you know, like it's the, again, we, it's the stuff you
1: can measure. It's the, it's the linear cause and effect mentality, the sort of attribution-type models that, that, you know, try to draw a direct link between this and that. And that that is a very left-brain way of thinking and it encourages left-brain kinds of work. And I, I talk in the book about the, the left brain's desire to shock to shock itself and other people out of a kind of boredom and because it can't really feel the world in the way the right brain can. And so you see, you know, you, you know, I talk quite a bit about it, but this desire to shock people is a very left brain tendency. Yeah. Um,
0: There's an interesting example, I mean, obviously we're sitting here in Edinburgh in Scotland, um, that, that some brands are prepared to take surprising risks. For example, the Royal Bank of Scotland uh, a brand that uh, is, is languishing at the bottom of every, every consumer table you mm. can, can look at. So it, it somehow feels it has permission to, to behave in, a sli- in, a, in, a, in an unusual or a warm or a particularly Scottish way and um, I know colleagues in town have created the work and I think it's actually called, it's great work but it's, we we're almost as Scots we have a permission to talk in a certain way mm-hmm. to ourselves and and if there's nothing to lose, why not go for it? So there are, there are elements of hope. Mm. <laughs> I think there
1: are. There are. There's a lot of hope around. You know, I hate anyone to feel despondent after reading the book. In fact, most people say you know it's very uplifting. And, and in fact, that I hope she doesn't mind me saying, but the proofreader who read it said to me afterwards, you know, I, I I was so much wrong about the world. I was so unhappy. You know, before I read it, I read your book, and I felt so happy again you know, when it touches mm. a proof, the proofreader, you know, I mean, yeah. he's not in advertising. That was the, that was the thing, yeah, I think the word
0: thing. you used earlier on which I, uh, I, I, I took was, was, people will get bored of this, yes. you know, people mm. will get bored of left and right and black and white and yeah. the complete divide that everything, and people just will want to move just on. Just get tired mm-hmm. of
1: it, you know, and you want to see, you want to kind of reconnect with what's important again with, yeah. with, with humanity, with depth, empathy, betweenness, all those things.
2: What do you think the effect of fake news and in this world of where there are a lot of lies out there, possibly less in advertising now because of rules and regulations, but do you think that the left brain is a reaction or the left brain advertising now is a reaction to that? Hmm. Or do you think it'll push us more towards more kind of emotional responses instead of it being very black and white and right and wrong.
1: Well I think the I think the the idea you know, I mean something you know where do you start with right or wrong or truth hmm. or lies, you know, because because um, often though I mean even scientific truths often turn out later to be to be overturned. Um, you know there are things that we think are are good things and things we think are bad things, and there 's a but the left brain likes to break things down into into very specific truths and lies there 's a lot of focus on truths and lies in today 's world and fact checking um, but there 's not very much focus on wisdom, which takes a lot longer to get by the way um, and and is sort of more all encompassing um, so I think, the, you know, this, this, this sort of truth and lies culture that we're in, I think, is, is, is reflecting the left brain's way of thinking about the world. And that, you know, we need to under, start to understand things in a more nuanced and ambiguous way, because if you don't, then you, set, you get polarisation, you get brittleness emerging in society, people setting themselves up against other people, a kind of tribalness emerges... You know, we've got to get away from that sort of rigid way of thinking and think about well, well there must be something in the, something that these people are thinking or saying that's making them feel that. Why is that? And try to explain it. And, it. and you know, it might touch about moral foundations in the book and Jonathan Haidt's work. And that I think that's part of the answer, perhaps that not everyone has the same moral foundations, and you know, that's why. People think of things in terms of truths or lies, when, when in fact they're just different ways of looking at the world and seeing it.
0: Just as a final note, and I, th- I just to wrap things up, I think, because I think we're running to time, was I found your book gave me a kind of useful framework in which to look out at the world That's and terrific. also to frame um, to frame the, the issues that the, the you know we as a society are facing, and also the how we how we break those down and. And in a really entertaining and um, and uh, an insightful way. Thank and you. I really appreciate. Thank you very much. You writing the book. Thank you very much. A pleasure. And thank you, everyone, for this. Thank you. Enjoy. Thank, Enjoy you. thank
3: you.